You're just like, I just want to watch the show. Why is there smoke and the squirrel is coming to eat my popcorn? The squirrel was aggressive. I I know. I I don't get it. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to I Don't Get It this week. This is your podcast about performances in Edmonton. My name is Fonda, and Paul is away this week again um, doing improvaganza type things. Uh, so I rounded up a couple of special guests, though, because um, it was a special week down in Horlack Park. The Free Will Shakespeare Festival opened two of their, well, their main two shows for the summer. So um, we'll get started with those right away. Um, very first up is two gentlemen of Verona, and our guest reviewer for that is Matthew Stepanek. Here we go. Hi, Matt. Hi, Fonda. How's it going? It's going well. Good. Yeah. <laughs> well, so what, what did we just see? Um, we just went and saw two gentlemen of Verona for the Free Will, uh, Free Will Shakespeare Festival. Yes, and it was a rainy, cool night. It was their opening. Um, but yeah, it's nice to be under the tent. At least you don't get the rain on you. Yeah, no, we, we managed to stay dry. And like you reminded me to bring a warm sweater and also a blanket. Well, I didn't bring a blanket, but I kept warm with a sweater. So, I mean, that's just as comfortable. Yeah, you can still enjoy things with, with wine and Shakespeare. Um, had you seen Two Gentlemen of Verona before? Did you know much about the play be- going in? No, this was actually my first experience uh, in seeing it, and I hadn't read it at all, despite taking six, six credits of Shakespeare. Actually, like nine or 12 credits of Shakespeare when you count all the other courses, but yeah. So. Lot, lots of Shakespeare credits in that English degree, right? Yeah. yeah I yeah. remember them well. <laughs> yeah, it's they, they were good, fun times, but uh, yeah, never, never touched this play before. Maybe for reasons reasons that we learned tonight. <laughs> reasons that we will divulge into shortly. Um, well, so can you maybe give us a really brief synopsis of sort of like, what? how does the play begin? Yeah, well, the play begins with um, Valentine, um, our lead, uh, leaving to go to Verona, right? Or no, wait, no, he's going to Milan. They're from Verona. They're from Verona. Yeah. Oh my God, why did you get me to do the summary? <laughs> So, from what we learned from the play, though, is that there are many stupid lovers that come from Verona. We'll just start there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Verona men, if you're with a Verona man right now, you should probably leave him or, you know, he's probably really easy to hold on to. Actually, no, they're also very not faithful. Yeah, they're kind of fickle. They tend to get banished. Um, yeah, run. Just run. <laughs> run. Run from the Verona men. So anyways, um, they come from Verona and Valentine goes off to Milan. Um, to, I guess, discover himself, you know, and eventually, um, you know, his friend Proteus joins him. Um, Valentine falls for this woman, Sylvia, who is the daughter of the Duke, Silvio, very cleverly named. Um, And also then, you know, uh, uh, Proteus, despite having, like, decided that he's in love with this woman, Julia, in Verona, as soon as he sees Sylvia, he falls madly in love with her and convinces himself that Julia is dead so that he can work on wooing Sylvia. So... A really interesting, like, is it a love triangle? Is it more of like a love dagger? A yeah. Love arrow? This is one thing that I don't get because they started out with a very sort of 
tender bromance. Like mm-hmm. it's these two Proteus and Valentine are these like boys that grew up together and they they obviously are have lots of affection for each other. Um, Proteus cries when Valentine leaves to also sings him a beautiful song. Uh, what was the song at the beginning? I'm trying to, I don't remember what the song was, but the but it was full of pop songs, this show. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of sort of like love ballads. There was some, you know, Italian songs, like the When the Moon Hits Your Eye, you know. Yeah. They were they were really playing up also in the um in the costuming and everything, this sort of like heightened style of Milan. Um in the nineties, maybe? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a lot of like weird mismatch, but like also like some really cute outfits, like really good shoes. Um, you know, like Sylvia had like kind of her bubblegum pink outfit that I was really digging. Uh, Julia had some like cool metallic shoes. I feel like all the women for like how they were poorly abused and mistreated got to wear some wear some of like the better outfits. Yeah. Yeah. And I liked I did also like the patterns that were on um, some of the I guess the servant class of characters. Speed. Speed was wearing, um, you know, just similar to her name, some sort of like kind of race car checkerboard style stuff. And um, uh what was it? Lance. Lance. I was going to say Flance, but <laughs> that's not right. Lance, played by Belinda Cornish, was in, um, you know, sort of all sorts of stripes and, and things. Um, yeah, it, it, the costuming was sort of like an interesting part of it. Um, and there was there were some dance club dance club breaks as well. That yeah. was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I really liked uh, Jesse Gervais's DJ that he played at one moment. He had the like the weird, strange, like light up goggles on his face, did a quick change and like tossed on a white hoodie. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, and that was like a, a fun scene to also sort of watch and add to like a modernization of Shakespeare. Yeah, it was kind of interesting because a lo- there were a lot of parts in this play that you could see mirrored um, parts that would sh- that Shakespeare would write in pl- into plays later. Um, and so that nightclub scene a little bit with, you know, um, it's sort of when Proteus notices Sylvia for the first time. And it really is really kind of made me think of the party scene in Romeo and Juliet where they Romeo sees Juliet for the first time dancing um, so you know and there's a few other things a few lines and stuff that really kind of like hark to um, not only Romeo and Juliet but also um, uh, As You Like It and some of the other um, thematic uh, tropes that Shakespeare has like the, the, um, the girl who dresses as a boy to try and escape and find her lover or whatever yeah Anyway, um, well, what did you think of some of the, um, of, of well, of the relationship, the, the sort of like four main characters in the show? Um, what, what transpired there? Yeah, well, like, uh, Valentine, uh, you know, like, maybe there could have been something there. Like, there seemed like there was some redeemable qualities, at least in the sense that, like, you know what? He loved Sylvia first, and he was going to try and woo her and win her back and kind of, like, take her from... Um, Uh, her father who didn't you know approve of the marriage because he I think had arranged her to be wedded to Turio uh, who was kind of a douche yeah (laughs) a little bit but like you know successfully I feel like uh, I made a joke earlier that this was like more like the two douches of Verona Um, which I love I think that's brilliant because that's exactly 
how I felt. <laughs> yeah, but the douches were so well played in a way. Like I think the 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 the, the director and the artists involved in the show were kind of aware of the problematic elements, and so sort of heightened it in the characters. So um, uh, Oscar Dirks, who pay- played um, Proteus, you know, also kind of like not the type of man that anyone should want to give their time to. And like, I felt so bad for Julia who like, you know, disguised as a man, Sebastian, you know, like does all of these things to help um, her lover woo another woman. And I just think like, what Julia, like, why don't you respect yourself? You know, like where was her gay best friend to kind of just like (laughs) go with her and be like, Julia, you need to like, just give the ring back. Like, just, just, just move off. Like, I guess that's, it's kind of interesting because that, that was like a, an actual, like there was a, a meme series where it was like gay best friend. If like any of these Shakespeare women had like a gay best friend. And I don't know if anyone ever did two guys of Verona or two, sorry, two gentlemen of Verona. (laughs) And I feel like that's the one that needed it the most. We feel like wanting to call this show anything but two gentlemen of Verona because they are absolutely not gentlemen. Um, I will, I will point out though that um, Oscar Dirks played Proteus and his sort of deliciously awful ego um, very well. Yeah. It was it was really it pulled off really well. Um, same uh, same thing with um, I thought Ben Stevens. You know, you did feel for Valentine a little bit uh, at at certain points because he got he got screwed sort of like by everyone. Um, just not not super. Not super smart, but Ben Stevens did really great with the role. And Gianna Viserca and um, Patricia Serra playing um, uh, Julia and uh, Sylvia, respectively. Um, I thought that they were both, they they both did very well, too. And and, um, in in particular, Julia's role had some very funny parts at the beginning um, with some, with a letter (laughs) that, that I thought was kind of like one of the more interesting uh, letters in a Shakespeare show that I've seen because that prop lasted a very long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she had to carry it around with her till like the end of the show. It was all taped up. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I thought like, yeah, all the women in the show and like particularly like shout outs to um, Bobby Goddard as Speed and then Belinda Cornish as Launce. Like I feel like these, these servant slash fool characters like really like held their own and like everything like they were just they were the the wit and light of the show yeah and I'm really glad that they were cast as female performers um mm-hmm. normally usually they would be cast as male uh, in as male but um it was yeah also let's talk about um let's talk about crab the dog oh my god <laughs> e- everyone just like fell in love with him and like and part of it you know was um Belinda's monologues um and just like how like the the dog was made out to be this like terrible villain and like you know like just like oh you're not like uh, I think Lance just goes off about how like you're the only one who's not crying that we have to leave yeah. and everyone would just like look to this dog who's sitting there so adorably like it was just yeah. the way that she played with him to like set like this dog up as some sort of villain in the show and like you're just like no I just I don't yeah. know maybe maybe as like a pet and dog lover I'm just like oh poor poor crab you know yeah you could tell the dog lovers in the audience because anytime um, crab the dog who's played by Alice Cornish Muir, who is actually Belinda and Mark Muir's dog. Um, he he would sit there and he would just sort of kind of like even the slightest glance at her made Belinda's lines more funny. So I think it was, you know, it was a great device, great for Lance's character. Um, and yeah, and it's always neat to see a dog on stage, especially in an outside venue when, you know, there's a lot of things that could 
distract a puppy, right? Like squirrels and birds and yeah. other people in rain. <laughs> and I and I saw Belinda had to carry uh, Alice a few times, you know, probably because like Alice didn't want her little paws to get wet. So <laughs> I appreciate that, you know, like probably Diva Dog treated the best throughout the show. Yes. Yeah, it was in her rider that like cannot get water on her. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what sort of equity rules there have to be around the dog's breaks and yeah. things like that. You know, stage manager's like, okay, Alice needs Alice needs to take five. Yeah. <laughs> she hasn't been getting enough treats throughout the show. Yeah. She's probably starving. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, um, and we'll we'll kind of like cut it off here to say that we're going to talk about the end of the show. Um, so if you don't want to hear about what happens in the end of the production, spoilers begin here. Um, Matt, they changed the ending of the show. <laughs> they, they definitely did. And um, it's interesting, like, if I want to think if it's for the vet better or not. So I guess at the end, you know, typical Shakespeare comedy, uh, everyone is just all the problems are resolved. Everyone forgives them for their like, you know, mischievous and uh, encounters and all those like the bad things that they did. And then everybody gets married and they're happy. Um, but at the end of this one, I think everyone involved kind of realized that maybe, you know, Valentine and Proteus didn't deserve these women who, you know, mm-hmm. were so good and faithful to them. Because I guess there's um, a moment at the end where uh, Proteus, um, you know, um, sort of says that he, he threatens um, Sylvia, who's like rejected him, and says that he's going to force her to yield to his desire. And so you get this really intense, like, um, you know, slow motion battle scene in the show where um, you're not quite sure if Proteus is about to rape Sylvia. And it's kind of uh, Julia her, who first steps in to save Sylvia, which I, I think probably, you know, wouldn't have ever happened in a Shakespeare play that like, you know, this woman's coming to the aid of another woman. Um, but it's not until like Valentine comes down to kind of stop Proteus from attacking um, Sylvia that she's sort of saved. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and so like, then the men just forgive each other for everything that happened. And that's sort of like this awkward moment where like there's a line that we were discussing earlier where, um, you know, Proteus almost seems to offer Sylvia. uh, Sorry, not Proteus. uh, Valentine seems to almost offer Sylvia to Proteus Mm -hmm. um, because they're such good friends and like as if these women are just like bartering chips for these men. And um, it's interesting to watch both of the women go still at the end. Like you don't see either of them acting or choosing to act or even like participating in this conversation because then um, the merry band of men who live in the forest come with the Duke and, um, you know, like all the men sort of have this conversation about like, okay, now the women are going to get married to the men and everyone's going to be happy. Mm -hmm. And then we see all of the men leave, but the women stay on the stage. And Mm -hmm. there's this final moment where one of the merry band of men turns out to be a woman and so, you know, she invites the uh, Julia and Sylvia to go live in a cave with her, yes. it seems, and start a new uh, <laughs> matriarchal society, potentially. Yeah, well, and they cover their faces. They were yeah. all kind of like, you know, they they had these kerchiefs sort of around their necks and they all covered their faces and kind of stalked away into the night. Um, maybe... You know, in 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 some ways, and and throughout that final scene, you know, when um, Valentine realizes that uh, uh, Proteus has been trying to woo Sylvia behind his back, um, you know, he has this big blow up with him, and then there's only you know, sort of thirty seconds and a couple of lines that Proteus speaks, saying, "I'm really freaking sorry," um, and Valentine's like, "Oh, that's okay." 
it's okay, man. Yeah. We're good. And it's just, it's shockingly fast how it turns around. Um, Proteus has an interesting line about how um, men are so, men are perfect except for their, you know, their constancy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, no, there's a lot more wrong with this whole thing <laughs> than constancy. Um, and, but throughout that entire kind of last scene also, um, Sylvia and Julia have uh, very few lines, but Julia does say something about how, um, women will change so much about themselves and men only have to change their mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that like uh, yeah, men uh women can change their shapes but men can change their minds. Mm-hmm. And and I think that 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 says a lot where like, you know, now at this moment these women have chosen to be the ones to change their minds and not follow. And these like men who like are so gleeful and whatever they seem to have like won or like encountered in their friendship, like have completely ignored the fact that like these women like I think it's it actually like it fits for the show that they would have forgotten that the women weren't following them because they didn't really ever seem that interested in the women to begin with mm-hmm. you know like where it could just be kind of like oh this woman is sort of like a, a shiny object yeah. that's to be won throughout the show yeah yeah they, they they definitely seem more like shiny objects than than um persons of agency and um yeah and i think that this being one of shakespeare's earlier plays i think you do see in other shows there is more character development of the women um and there are more i feel opportunities where say maybe that gay best friend role kind of does come out a little bit like you saw it kind the the first glimpses of it starting in um Lucetta who was um Julia's maid and and in um Sir and in Chris Bola's role what was the character name it was fun something oh, funny Oh Sir Eglamore yeah, Sir Eglamore, um, sort of who ends up kind of like, he's not a priest or anything, but you see it in the nurse and the priest roles that that kind of follow from, you know, in Shakespeare's canon thereafter for any sort of like young lovers in strife. So that's sort of, and they often play the play the comedic relief as well, too. So that's, you kind of see the seeds of that happening for Shakespeare's later shows. But what I wanted to ask was, you know, we've we've kind of had the, the talk on this podcast before even about Taming of the Shrew and is like, should these plays be done? Even if, you know, we are we are in a different era now. We know that we, there's blatant misogyny and sexism uh, in these roles. And yes, you can cross-gender cast and all that kind of stuff, but... But how much longer are we going to do these shows for? And is, and, is, and is that a thing? Is the language worth it? <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because, like, there's still moments of, like, knowing that, you know, the almost rape scene was coming in the show and hearing Proteus talk to uh, the Duke Silvio and him kind of being like, oh, like, talking about how he would potentially, like, woo somebody. Oh, no, wait, so this is Valentine mm-hmm. talking to Silvio. So another moment where, like, Valentine also kind of shows his true character where he talks about how... Um, uh, basically, you know, like women say one thing, but they really want another. And so like, just because like she says that she won't go, like you should still make her go. And so there's a lot of language and moments in this play where it's kind of like, oh, how can we force women to do things? And, you know, so like at the, at the end, like it still feels like we're going to force them to be a part of this marriage. And, you know, it, the, the ending 
works against everything else that the play has been like working towards that would make it like kind of a sound whole comedy. So you kind of wonder like, oh, is there value in having um, Julia and Sylvia go off and start something else? Like, what is what does that really mean? Because it feels like this could just be part one and then part two is like two gentlewomen of Verona, you know, kind of like coming back with their revenge. And like that would be maybe, you know, the the Shakespeare adaptation that this play could take on instead. I hope. Well, and I hope it would be a revenge play. Good God. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, and there was, you know, the moment at the at the very end where um, Julia and Sylvia, you know, they kind of look at each other and they hold hands and walk off together. That felt so much more authentic and genuine than um, (laughs) Um, You know, Valentine and Proteus finally being reunited and they're, you know, back, you know, their best best buds again. Um, And it just, you know, I felt like a lot of what's intended, I think, in the original writing of the show is that is to show this like, you know, joy of um, male friendship. Um, And what I think kind of came out in the end is how women watch out for each other. Um, even if it wasn't, you know, and, and yeah, and there were actually references to it throughout some of the rest of the show too, with, um, uh, Sylvia's, uh, servant or one of Sylvia's friends who stole the key when she was locked up. So there were a few other kind of things peppered throughout, I guess, that, that made that sort of theme, you know, the, the ladies, the ladies are watching, I guess, you know? Yeah, like maybe they're going to be invited to this, like, the secret society that's been working throughout the play the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, well, so that was Two Gentlemen of Verona. Um, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, Matt. Yeah, thanks for always having me. All right. And for now, we'll go on to our first ad. Remember the fun of signing up for the library's summer reading club when you were a kid? Well, now there's a summer reading club for adults. Stop by any Edmonton Public Library location between June 22nd and August 24th to get your activity sheet to track your summer reading. You can even win some amazing prizes. Visit epl.ca slash summer reads for all the information. Why should kids get to have all the fun? All right. Thanks again to Matthew Stepanek for stepping in and um, helping us review that um, classic of old bills. Um, And now up next, um, we have Andrea Anderson. She's coming back to review The Winter's Tale, um, source of, of course, as we all know, um, Shakespeare's most famous stage direction of all time. So um, I will leave you with that one for now. Hi, Andrea. Welcome back to I Don't Get It. Thank you, and thank you for having me two weeks in a row. I know. We're, we're kind of on a roll. Maybe we yeah. should keep this going all summer long. <laughs> Do you like Teatro La Quintachina? That's for later. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, well, what did we see tonight? We saw The Winter's Tale. Yes, in the Horlack Park by uh, Free Will Shakespeare Festival. This production was directed by Dave Horak. And, um, well, so uh, did you have any familiarity with the play before going in? I did not know this particular play, no. But I was briefed by my expert hostess, uh, host, on the way into the play as to kind of what to expect. You're, you're talking about me. Yeah, Is I'm that... talking about Fonda. Oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't know if you prefer... Guide. Guide. 
theater guide. Theater guide. Yes. Also, I also I had to read the synopsis of the play. I have seen A Winter's Tale before, and I have read it, um, but it's not one of the more commonly produced plays. Um, actually, the pairing that they have at the at the park this year is I feel is quite a rare one. They usually do you know a straight up popular comedy with one of the more uh, well known tragedies. So this is kind of an interesting. Um, a little bit of a departure for them. Um, in any case, uh, maybe cue us up a little bit. Sort of what happens in in the very beginning of the Winter's Tale? How does this story get set up? Well, the setup for for this was interesting. So we start with people surrounding a trash can fire, and I have to say that I have a special affinity for a trash can fire. Um, reminds me a little bit of a campfire. It's just a, a nice warm vibe. We have. Um, is it because you're from Saskatchewan? Maybe, you know. <laughs> no, no, people from Saskatchewan are going to hate me for that comment. I take it back. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't like a trash can fire? True. That's okay, as an aside. So that was um, the setup, and we have somebody coming to offer to tell a tale. Uh, and, and sort of those characters transition into characters in the tale, which I thought was quite well done and very sort of smoothly orchestrated mm-hmm. um and then we just dive into oh, we're at a court party at the castle um the king is there with his friend i mean supposedly is his friend but he immediately goes to like insane jealousy and assumes that his friend has had an affair with his pregnant wife uh <laughs> yeah it all looks fast yeah it, felt, yeah it all seems to happen very quickly so leontes the king played by the um by sheldon elter is um his friend polly nixies played by jesse gervais is the king of bohemia who is visiting nadine chu plays um leontes wife Hermione she is the pregnant one and um she is a little flirtatious you know a little flirting yeah you know I mean was it to the point where he should be flipping out I'm not sure but it was a little flirty sure yeah well the flip out yeah the but the flip out was um enormous (laughs) disproportionate to the flirting (laughs) yes because he ends up um banishing her and all of these things these terrible things happen she dies the baby gets taken away um and their and their son they they have a son what uh the the supposed heir what happens to the son he died he also died very suddenly um sort of while his mother the queen was in court getting uh well, tried for her adulterousness, although she was cleared by the Oracle. So, you know, there was some fairness in the courtroom, at least, although the king didn't buy that Oracle business at all. So, yeah, what's funny is that the Oracle, which is supposed to tell all the truth, did tell the truth. And the king still didn't believe it and still banished her. And all of this shit happened afterward. <laughs> he got a really bad vibe at that party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it, it was bad, um, and then so yes, so his his heir dies of grief because his mother is also banished and and things like that, and then there's sort of a train. So we we go through that most part of the first act with a very heavy, dramatic sort of almost like psychologically heavy mm-hmm. themes, and then there's sort of a bit of a turn. Yes, yeah. The first the first act was definitely um dark and i almost you almost wonder if the king is going through like a mental break of some kind like it's almost that level of darkness and of course the banishment and the sun dying everything um cut to break come back 
it's getting a little bit a little bit fun a little bit magical even yeah. because our uh the baby who was born in prison and was meant to be banished um has has been discovered by a, a shepherd i don't want to um, it's a shepherd yeah, yeah it's, to- I, it's totally a shepherd because because with the with the shepherd along come the sheep <laughs> i didn't want to i think we skipped over the bear though well, okay, so yes, <laughs> The Winter's Tale is the source of Shakespeare's, as we know, most famous stage direction. What is the stage direction? A bear. <laughs> it's it's exit pursued by a bear. Um, so the character um, who, you know you find out ends up getting killed by a bear this the stage direction has been handled in many different ways in different productions because not many theater companies number one have access to a bear um it seems a little bit out of nowhere considering that you know there's no other bears or anything mentioned leading up to this um but I kind of don't want to give away how they did the bear because it was quite tender and liked, and lovely. I, I liked how they did the bear. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. And I had no objection to the bear. I actually, I thought that was one of the strong points. But I think that's it's worth seeing it for um, the way that the bear was done even. And it was a little bit of foreshadowing in some of the earlier scenes pre-King flip out as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so anyway, jump ahead. Yes. So you can kind of see the bear coming. And then all of a sudden, the character of time <laughs> appears um, and and magically transforms into Perdita, into the daughter who is then 16 years old, 16 years later. Um, and then so and then the play progresses, as many of Shakespeare's comedies do. There's a lot of talk about young love and loving outside of your status and things like that. Um, there is a sheep shearing festival with much dancing and song. Um I like I really love sequences like this because it tends to show this the breadth of talent in the entire company um, the like you know the the genre jumping in songs and things like that <laughs> um, Chris Bulla and Bobby Goddard and Patricia Sarah had a particularly good country song that uh, <laughs> that kind of came out of it um, yeah what what were your thoughts on that sort of a uh, party that was happening I mean it was great and it did feel though like a different genre than the the beginning of the play to be absolutely um but it was fun it felt more like a comedy we had you know people in disguise the classic shakespearean nobody's gonna notice the king coming because he has a beard on and (laughs) lots of singing and dancing the sheep were so charming and you see these um actors who have just had these amazing dramatic performances at the beginning of the play are suddenly, you know, prancing sheep-like and just adorably around. And yeah, it was lots of fun, but felt very detached from, not detached, um, different, different, different. It felt different. That is a matter of the, the play itself and not, you know, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. You were saying as we were walking up to the car here, you're like, if I had an issue with anything, it was sort of just like the plot, like the actual writing of the play. <laughs> but I think they really pulled it off. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you do kind of have this up and down um, going from very dark to light and fun and silly. And there's like the minstrel slash um, con man who's popping in and out sort of helping move things along 
Uh, then it gets kind of dark again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets dark again. Goes back to because then they return to Cecilia, they to um, Leontes' home where Leontes is still in mourning. He's been in mourning for sixteen years. Um, and they, uh, there was a character that we wanted to point out. Um, Belinda Cornish played Paulina. Um, just searing in this role she is so angry at him um in the first half with how he has treated hermione um and his children really and then um in the end you know you see that now she is a widow and she's still beside him kind of reminding him every day of how 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 shitty he was (laughs) yeah really amazing shade and also when she uh informs him that the queen has died closer to the beginning um just the best tell-off incredibly done mm-hmm. uh yeah and also the darkness uh, to add um with the other king who seemed really fun and easy going at the beginning is suddenly casting his son out because um he's taken up with a apparently a shepherd's daughter uh yeah, who of course we all know is is um, actually Leontes and Hermione's daughter, uh, Perdita. That's her name. Um, but yeah, it, of course they don't know that. And his son, um, it starts with an F. What is the What is his name again? Florizel, um, played by Oscar Dirks. Um, I thought that um, Florizel and Perdita made a really nice couple in this. Perdita was played by Christina Ngoyen. Who also played the prince. Yes, who also played her older brother who died. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was kind of uh, like just nice, very nice casting in that. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, she had kind of like a winsome heroine role in the end. I thought that was very nicely done. But yeah, Jesse Gervais as Polynixes totally turns on his son on like a dime because he's fallen in love with um, just with Perdita only because she's been raised by a shepherd uh, played by Nathan Kaka, who was also very um, kind of plucky and and cute in this role too yeah Yeah, definitely love the shepherd doesn't really take much for the kings to just totally lose it and turn on everyone that they apparently loved but uh again plot yeah (laughs) well what do you think that was trying to say about like i mean you know it's not the first king that's been kind of an idiot in Shakespeare's canon. Like we have lots of them that sort of turn on their families and stuff. Of course, there's Lear. Um, what did, What do you think that this says about men with power? <laughs> Whew, that's tough. I mean, I could put lots of things onto it from my own perspective, but I'm not sure if it's what Shakespeare was trying to tell us. I do think you do get the vibe of just these are sort of uh, a little bit flaky guys who have a lot of power and aren't really thinking it through maybe on <laughs> the decision making I'm not sure if that's what Shakespeare was trying to get across it could, it, it could have been <laughs> I, the Winter's Tale is sort of I think of that late period when Lear and the Tempest were too so maybe that's kind of part of it you know the the men who are aging and losing their wits about themselves a little bit, possibly. Um, but, uh, you know, also the the roles played by the women, in particular the women playing the older characters, Hermione and Paulina, um, you know, just like very strong. Like Hermione is full of such grace and stoicism and just like Nadine Chu can play anything on that stage and it will make me weep (laughs) um but uh like yeah and Hermione is one of the more I feel wronged 
wronged women of of the canon because she like she's pregnant when she gets banished and you know she kind of just like takes it in stride and was like all right I'm just gonna go you have your little tantrum over here and I'm gonna give birth to this baby yeah (laughs) definitely although it was heartbreaking when she comes out in the court scene and is looking like she has just given birth and is you know very dressed down wearing like a nightgown um looking heartbroken yeah very strong female performances mm-hmm. um what did you think of the costumes i felt like they had sort of like um almost like a little bit of a byzantine look to them yeah i could see yeah i could see some of that um interesting i thought the most sort of standout was the I keep calling him the minstrel, but that's not really what he was. Uh, <laughs> the sort of con man type man. Yeah. Autolysis? Autolycus? I don't I don't know how it was pronounced, but it's played by Chris Bulla. Mm-hmm. He often plays sort of a minstrel clown type thing because he, yeah. he can wail. That's, that's, that's yeah. the deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of, you know, you can tell he's kind of shape-shifting as he goes along, and that was really coming across in the costume changes, even though it was very kind of minimal changes that he was making like turning his vest inside out and uh adding on a few things as he stole them from people essentially mm-hmm. um <laughs> the other costumes that's a good question let me think i'm thinking well the i it, it was a little bit windy when we mm-hmm. saw it and i one thing i noticed there was that they actually had sort of like these nice headpieces um mm-hmm. that had a drape across the across the chin for the women um and often these would sort of like get blown into the mic or into the rest of their face and they're like oh god the wind the wind does not work with this costume piece um but i mean they worked with it and actually i thought it was kind of um different than what they were going for in the play yesterday when in Two Gentlemen of Verona, it was all sort of like really like high fashion Milan, but like '90s. So there were a lot of fluorescent colors and patterns, and it was um, yeah. So this was kind of more of like a kind of uh, it seemed like they were from a faraway place a little bit, you know, um, and and kind of a little bit more. Um, even looking a little bit closer at Paulina's costume, looked a little bit celestial. She kind of had a little magical thing at the end because there's yeah. the bit with the statue where she turns the statue into a real life thing. What what were your thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we are prepared that there's potentially going to be magic in the preamble with the trash can fire Mm -hmm. which i again enjoyed um (laughs) (laughs) so we do have the statue that's unveiled once um the kings have reunited with their children and everyone is happy the the happy prince and princess couple get to be together uh and the unveiling of the queen the dead queen statue Mm -hmm. happens and then there's a little bit of magic and or maybe she was hiding for 16 years because I'm maybe being a little bit too logical about it. But that's, you know, I, I, can, I was just kind of hoping. That I can see that okay. the science loving rational side of you is just like she was just hiding. That couldn't have been a statue. Right. <laughs> but then the Oracle was really spot on. So who am I to argue maybe with some of the, the magic there? So, yeah, the statue slash hiding lady comes back to life and. Um, is reunited with her husband, the fickle king, and her lovely daughter, who she hasn't seen in 16 years or and or 
just rediscovered after arising from the dead. Um, I don't know. What did you think about the, the statue resurrection? Well, the resurrection, they use the word resurrection is, is, is apt, I think, because Paulina right before that talks about how people need to summon their faith in order for the statue to come alive. Um, and of course, with the, if I'm, if I am thinking of it right in that there's sort of kind of like a Byzantine Eastern look about it, like even, even Perdita's flower crown looked a little bit like sort of one of those, um, sort of Slavic flower crowns that I'm, anyway, um, but yeah, she says you need to summon your faith and that's what the only thing that will make the statue come alive. And when then when she does come alive, it is very sort of um, Virgin Mary with the with the halo sort of around and even what she's wearing, the drape, the drape of the cloth, um, the final scene with her um, and the <laughs> and Leontes and her daughter sort of like um, bowing and, and holding her is just kind of like, oh, yes, this totally looks like one of those icons that you'd see in, in like an Eastern church. Mm-hmm. Um, just the the pose, um, the posture of it and everything. So so I think think maybe in a way that was sort of the look or the aesthetic that they were going for and the feel that yeah something something transcendent has happened um that maybe we have to acknowledge is magic and somehow spiritual and and even a little religious you know like love the mother (laughs) you know sail your hair hail marys (laughs) absolutely yeah I, i did have the same thought with the sort of crown looking like a halo esque um yeah, it was a, it was this powerful ending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. though I was still a little bit, I was a little bit pissed at that king still. Yeah, you still feel real icky <laughs> with the women getting like so abused for so long, and then everyone's like, oh, but it's you know it's okay, we're together again. It's like, well, no, it's, it's kind of not really that okay. <laughs> so. But she was she was a forgiving queen, so. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Forgiveness. Another another very um, biblical. biblical sort of <laughs> sort of reference. All right. Well, that was the Winter's Tale. Um, thank you so much, Andrea, for coming back on the podcast and talking about some Shakespeare. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Um, and with that, we will go to our last ad. This summer, Chris Chang-Yan Phillips of the Let's Find Out podcast hosts a monthly book club related to their season focus on how humans and nature shape each other. Each month, they'll gather to talk about a book that's helped inspire their podcast this season. You don't have to read the book to join in, just drop by and join in the conversation. This month, the focus is on Dreamwork, a book of poetry by Mary Oliver. The meetup is on June 27th at Mill Creek Cafe, and it's free to RSVP. To find out more about Let's Find Out and all of APN's member podcasts, visit albertapodcastnetwork.com. All right. So thank you so much to Matt and Andrea for stepping in uh, and filling Paul's shoes this week. It was great to um, experience Shakespeare with with y'all. And uh, I hope you'll be back sometime soon. All right. Next week, we are going to have a special Sterling's Roundup because the Sterling's is happening um, as this airs tomorrow on June 24th, the Monday, the dark day when all of the theaters shut down. They have a big award show and uh, and and a. Uh, prime rib buffet 
<laughs> so that should be great. Um, next week's episode, yeah, we'll we'll talk about what happened at the Sterlings, and we'll do a bit of a season wrap up, talking about um, some things that we noticed over the season, shows that we liked, maybe shows that we didn't, and also things that happened in the uh, performing arts, theater, and dance community throughout the year. And um, we also hope to have a very special announcement on our summer plans in that episode. So stay tuned for that. I'll give you a little bit of listings for now here. Running until August 4th at the Mayfield Dinner Theater is Sleuth. Um, until July 14th, as previously mentioned, in Horlack Park is the Freewell Shakespeare Festival, alternating dates with Two Gentlemen of Verona on even dates and The Winter's Tale on odd dates. July 20th through August 1st is um, the Citadel's first summer foray into um, regular programming. Ring of Fire, the music of Johnny Cash, will be um, there at the Citadel. And then starting up on July 11th, running to the 27th, is The Bad Seed by Maxwell Anderson, continuing Teatro La Quindicina's um, offbeat summer season they 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 run all year it's great um and that's that's running at the varscona theater so well thank you for listening everyone there's lots to do hope you're enjoying the uh sunshine in between all this rain and uh yeah go see some shows bye i don't get it is a member of the alberta podcast network powered by atb you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the CKUA radio app. I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blenov. Sit here, thank you. I love you.